If you would, you could either turn in your pew Bibles, and again, if you don't have a pew Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, please take it and read it and devour it, and it is yours. It's a gift from us to you. Um, you can either turn in your pew Bibles to page 517, or uh, you can look in your the front of your bulletins. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 126 together. Psalm 126. And as I've mentioned, we're in our fifth Sunday of the season of Lent, a time where we focus on the fact that things are not the way they're supposed to be, that we look out at the world and we see a lot of suffering and we look at our own hearts and we see a lot of darkness and we realize, wow, I don't love people like I want to love them. And I don't really love God like I say I love God. And there's a lot of discrepancy between reality and and what we want. And so Lent forces us to reckon with that, forces us to reckon with our own hearts to see why is that and to repent of that. And so the season of Lent is six weeks of repentance. It's not just a one and done type thing, but it is a continual, hey, this is the life that we are called to live. And like we looked at uh, last week, that the, the call for all of our lives is to live a life of brokenness, to say, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. And I'm pretty disappointed about that. You see, you and I, just a few weeks ago, even within the same season of Lent, I said that a true Christian faith looks at reality as God looks at reality. And it, and it says something's not right. And yet there's a problem with many of us, if not all of us, at some point in our life, we struggle to accept things as they are. We, we struggle to accept a situation to say it's not really that bad. And this is a struggle that happened even from our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they were created in the garden. right? That they had sinned against God and they realized what they did in sinning against God. And what did they do? They hid from God. And many of us hide from God when we sin against Him. We hide from Him and then what do they do? They sewed fig leaves together and they try to cover their nakedness, their, cover their shame. And they said, I'm not as bad as I... Am. And so we struggle with that same thing that Adam and Eve struggle with, is that we don't want to accept the fact that we are really at our heart, in our the root of our souls, sinners and rebels against God. Not only that, but they, like us, blame other people and they blame circumstances as opposed to saying, that's my bad, my fault. Adam and Eve, what do they do? They blame someone else because it's out there. I'm not the problem. And yet Scripture makes it very clear that our hearts are the problem. Our hearts are the problem. We stare at our failures and we stare at our shame and we want to blame others for what got us in the circumstance that we're in. And then we try to busy ourselves with a lot of activity So that we don't have to think about that. And then we hide ourselves from the reality that you and I don't like what God has to tell us a lot of times. So we do this in our everyday life because we haven't accepted the fact, for one, that we are meant to be a broken people. We're meant to be broken hearted and crushed. We don't sit in the fact 
that the world is broken around us and we are contributors to that brokenness. And so the Bible tells us to sit in that repentance, to sit in the fact that you and I have more to be blamed for than we like to admit. And see, the beauty of the Christian faith is that it's willing to accept that the world is broken. It doesn't just try to put a Band-Aid on it and pretend like it didn't happen. You see, I'm so glad that early on in my life, some friends of mine said, Hey, Matt, have you ever read the Psalms? And I had heard about the Psalms, and, um, but they said, Why don't you just read in the Psalms and read them out loud? Read them slowly. And so I started the practice of doing that pretty regularly in my Christian faith. I'll sit down and read them. And that's and like I said last week, that's the whole point of these psalms is that it's for the congregation of God's people. But then as individuals, we can sit down. And what I started to see in the book of Psalms was very different than what I was experiencing in church. Namely, in church, a lot of times because we don't like that uncomfortableness that I talked about, we don't like to... Don't like to just let people struggle and suffer and have pain. And yet what I was reading in the Psalms was that that's the story of the entire Psalms is that there's pain and there's suffering in the world. And God is enough for the psalmist. And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 126. You see, too many times as as Christians and as a church, when someone's going through something, a lot of times we just try to say, hey, God's got a plan for you. I know I know you lost your job and I know you lost your husband or your wife or your, your child or or your, 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 your circumstances aren't as bad, aren't as bad as they are. And yet in our hearts, we we know that that's not true. And so we've done a lot more harm to other people because we won't just let them sit in the sadness. Or sometimes we'll say, hey, man, don't don't cry. It'll, it'll get better. It'll get better. Maybe. Maybe we can't give false promises to folks because sometimes things get worse before they get better. Sometimes they get worse before they get better because to do that to folks is very cruel. To say, hey, it's, it's, it's going to get better. That could be one of the cruelest things that we can do because the Bible shows us, and as one author put it, he put it this way, it is an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad Things. It is an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad things. It's not a contradiction to cry and say that the Lord is my portion forever. That's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction to say, man, I am struggling. And yet I know that God is good, but I don't see the goodness right now. That's not a lack of faith. In fact, that's that's saying that I am sad because life is sad at times. And that's okay. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to have pain and suffering in your life. So this psalm, Psalm 126, I think it's fascinating that it sits in the middle of this section of psalms, Psalms 120 all the way through 134. It's this little section in the book of Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. The Songs of Ascent, you see that at the title of every one of these psalms, 120 to 134. So there's this section here, and 126 sits in the middle of that. And so what are these Songs of Ascent? Well, Jewish folks would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem to make sacrifices on high feast days. And so Jerusalem was built on a hill. And so as they're going up to make their sacrifices, and not only was Jerusalem built on a hill, but the temple itself was built at the highest point in Jerusalem. And so they would ascend 
the mountain, they would ascend the mountain to make sacrifices. And they would ascend the mountain with joy in their hearts, knowing that God was going to meet them at that moment. And yet, here we see that as they're ascending, their hearts are heavy. There are tears in their eyes as they're saying the Lord is good, but I don't feel it right now. But I'm going to say that the Lord is good, even though it doesn't look that way right now. The Lord has good plans, but it doesn't feel like it right now. But I'm going to continue to walk towards him. So as they walk up to the temple, they're singing this song. Psalm 126. And we're, we're just, there's just going to be two points in this message because it follows the structure of this psalm. So there's just two points. And so I'm just going to read the first three verses for point one and then point two, verses four through six. So let me read Psalm 126. A song of a sense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. We are glad. So the first point is that faith, genuine faith, looks back at God's faithfulness. Faith looks back at God's faithfulness because in the midst of grief, in the midst of grief, it's really hard to remember that you used to smile. You used to laugh. You used to see the world a little differently. You used to be joyful. And so what grief can do a lot of times, it can burden us so much that we can forget that just a couple years ago we were laughing and we were joyful. And this is what they're doing. They say, you remember when the Lord restored our fortunes not too long ago and maybe even a generation ago. The Lord restored us how joyful we were. And they were looking at God's faithfulness. You see, it's a good thing to look back at life and see how God has saved you. That is a good practice. And that's what we see in Psalm 126 is that they're looking back how God saved them. Maybe... Maybe the Lord saved you um, and delivered you from a job that really stunk, that you didn't like. Maybe the Lord delivered you from an overdose that didn't kill you. Maybe the Lord saved you from a friend that was just back crazy. And that's a good thing that that friend isn't in your life anymore. Maybe the Lord saved you from a darkness that would never lift. And you remember those dark nights and in, 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 in crying yourself to sleep. And yet the Lord delivered you. Maybe a glimpse, maybe a flicker of light, but the Lord delivered you. And so you look at that and you celebrate that and you say, the Lord has saved me. And that is something to rejoice about. Not something to just take for granted and just kind of get over. But to look at, wow, if I had gone down that path, I would be dead. But the Lord in his mercy saved you, quite literally, quite physically saved you in many circumstances. And yet we are so quick to move on from how he saved us. My friends, it is good and right to reflect on God's faithfulness to you. And it may have been what seems like a lifetime ago. But he still did it, didn't he? He still saved you. He still saved you. You see, each one of us 
And it takes the eyes of faith to look at the fact right now that you're alive. That next breath you take, a gift from God. Right now is a gift from him to you. And if you're still breathing, if you have eyes to see it, if you're still hearing these words right now, that means that God is not done with you yet. So maybe you're struggling. Maybe you can't see joy in the midst of the grief right now. Take a breath and realize that God is not finished yet. He's got good things in store for you. And we're going to look at that in our second half. But looking back isn't fun all the time, is it? Looking back isn't always candy and roses and fluffy teddy bears and laughter. Looking back at our life, we have to come to the terms with the fact that too many times, not all the time, hear me on this, but too many times, Much of what has gotten us into the situation that we are struggling with right now is our own decisions. Too many times. Our own decisions that have brought harm to us. After all, quite frankly, that's what Israel was dealing with. Israel was thrown into exile because they refused to listen to God. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that. That they were thrown into exile. They were chastised by the Lord because of their own decisions to live their lives according to their own ways. Their refusal to bow their knees to King Jesus right now. (laughs) Yet, in this psalm we see that God is not like you or me. God is not like you or me because they had rebelled against God, right? They had rebelled and they said, we want to live according to our own ways. We are going to erect idols and we're going to worship them. We're not going to worship God. We're going to do as we please. And yet, and yet, the Lord brought them into a place of abundance. Because what happens when someone fails you? What happens when someone hurts you? What do you do when someone says one thing and does another and stabs you in the back? What do you do? Well, if you're like me, you get angry with the person. I'm not going to fall for that again. And you begin to despise that person or persons in your heart. And then you hate them in your heart. And you commit murder in your heart against them. But we see here. That God is not like you or me. You and I have sinned against God. And we continue to sin against God. And yet he is not like us. And that's gloriously so that yet he will redeem you. In spite of your sin. The Lord is gracious and kind. Praise God that he is not like us. Nor does he treat us as our sins deserve. That we looked at a few few weeks ago. Look at verse 1. Where do I get that? The Lord restored. Verse 1. The Lord restored. Verse 2. The Lord has done great things. Repeat that. Verse 3. The Lord has done great things. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Your, Your sin and my sin deserve far worse than that next breath we just took. 
You see, the, the tendency, though, and this is why the point is faith looks back at God's faithfulness, because the tendency in all of our hearts, when we look at our lives and we see where we fail, is to say, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to get it right. I, I'm going to tighten up my boots and I'm going to I'm going to get this right. But see, God's faithfulness is the key here. God's faithfulness. The Lord restored. The Lord restored when they were in exile. What did they do to get out of that slavery in exile? The same thing they did in Egypt. They didn't try to finagle or try to coerce or try to manipulate other things or other situations. No, they cried out to God. Deliver us from the hands of Pharaoh. Deliver us from the hands of the king of Babylon. Deliver us, O God, for you alone can deliver. You alone can restore. They cried out to God. And so what we see from this is that the first step to restoration with God is repenting. Repenting. It's seeing a situation honestly, welcoming other people to help you understand a situation. Why does it seem, why does life seem so stinking hard? Welcoming other people in, seeing the situation for what it is, and then saying, for my part, I repent. I'm sorry that I have not lived according to God's word. And yet, God is merciful and gracious. And he says to all those who say, show me your ways and I will walk in your paths. He said, I'll show you the way. I'll show you the way. Because God is not like us. And so when you repent of your sin, you're putting your faith in God to restore you. Not your own ability And many times that's the most practical thing we can do is just to cry out, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. You see, you and I, not only do we try to fix ourselves and try to make it work, but we run to other streams first. That really is the problem that we see here, that we run to other streams first. We put our hope in our own ability to obey. We put our own Confidence in our being a better parent, a better husband or a better wife. I'm going to try harder. We put our confidence in that. But we have to start with crying out to God first. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a good thing to want to be better. And that's what God is in the program of doing. He is making us new. He's renovating our lives. He's reshaping us. Remember, I mentioned the hammer and the anvil before. He is in the business of reshaping us and restoring in us the image of God. Remember, I mentioned Adam and Eve. They, they were created in the image of God. And that's something that we can oftentimes look over. And I, I want to say to all of us in this room that you are made in the image of God, the creator of all that is. You are not ugly. You are made in the image of the creator. He said, let us create humankind in our image. So in the image of God, he created them male and female. You are in the image of God. And so when we sin against God, that image of God doesn't just go away. No, it's not like all of a sudden you're no longer made in the image of God. No, it's, it's like a, a huge cut on the front of your face. 
There's scars on your body because of that. But you are still made in the image of God. But see, God doesn't just want to take makeup and just try to cover over that. That's not what he's doing. And that's why life can be so painful. That's why suffering can seem so hard. It's because God is in the business of reconstructive surgery. He's getting down and he's cutting into our heart through circumstances. And he's reconstructing our heart, reconstructing our loves, reconstructing the way we see the world. And he is not just saying, hey, it's going to be okay." He doesn't put a Band-Aid over a cut that's going to get infected. He gets down into the heart and he cleans it out. And that cleaning, have you ever poured hydrogen peroxide on a cut or alcohol on a cut? It burns. And that's what's going on here is that the suffering is the burning out of the impurities in our lives. That's why it's so painful. Because as we ascend the heights, as we ascend the mountain to know God, our hearts still hurt. We remember that we experienced joy at one time in our lives, but it seems so far away and that laughter and joy seems like, quite frankly, a a dream, a distant memory, doesn't it? And so we come to our second point. Verses 4 through 6, that faith not only looks back at God's faithfulness to restore us, but faith looks forward to God's faithfulness. Faith looks forward to God's faithfulness in the midst of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow. Verses 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. My friends, let me just ask, if God was faithful to you in the past, if God was faithful to you in the past, why would he stop now? If God was good to you in the past, why would he stop being good to you? We've already seen that the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, a people who said, I am going to rebel. And the Lord is not like you and me. So why would he stop? You see, our problem too many times is that we look at those streams that we have often run to. We run, run to the we look at the relationships, the streams, right? We look at those things. We look at a job. If I could just get that job, if I could just get that relationship, if I could just get that. We run to those streams and then we we start to believe that those streams correspond directly with God. Now, it's true. It's true that all good things come from God, but they are not God. All good things, all good relationships, all good jobs, all blessings flow from him. But they are not God because friends will fail you. Relationships will fail you. A job will get ugly. People will betray us, right? People will turn their back on us. People will say one thing and do another. And that's okay because the Lord is in the business of showing us that streams dry up. We see again that while we run to other streams that we think will satisfy those streams will always and ever dry up. Family will fail you. 
friends will turn on you. We see that in the life of Jesus, don't we? That job that was so good will frustrate you because what God is wanting to do is he's wanting to lead you and me into the desert. He's taking you into a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because God loves you too much. He loves you so much that instead of thinking with your head in the clouds, and if I just had that, and he's in the business of pulling your feet down and putting them in the sand of the wilderness, into the sand of the desert, he's forcing you and me to see how everyone, every hope, and every dream will run dry. And so he, in his grace, leads us to the desert. So what do we do? We cry out to him. We see it again, right? We see it. We saw it in the beginning and we see it again here in verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev. The Negev was the desert region in the southern part of Israel. So they are quite literally, they're saying, God, I am parched. My mouth is dry. I have... All the streams that I've run to have dried up. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Because the Lord wants those streams to dry up. He wants all of our confidence and all our hopes and everything else to run dry. So that he can be the only one to satisfy us. The only one. We were created by him and we were created for him so that he can show that we were meant to. To be filled with him and him alone. But it's only when our other streams run dry and our tears seem to run dry that then bring shouts of joy, right? We see that. They reap with shouts of joy. They shall come home with shouts of joy. When you and I truly experience the love of God, when you and I truly experience the deliverance of God, we shout for joy. We can't hold it back. We may look like a fool to others, but we know that he's delivered us and it really doesn't matter what they think about me because I am going to shout for joy for God has saved me. Because all those people didn't satisfy us. All that other stuff in the earth didn't satisfy us and yet the Lord satisfied us. He filled us up while those streams ran dry. And we say the Lord has not only done great things for them, but he's done great things for me. And that is the declaration among the nations is that you and I don't just sit in a room and then kind of meditate on all the good things. But we shout for joy because God has saved us in the past and he will save us in the future. This shouting, though, is never separate from tears. For those of us who are struggling right now, this may seem so far away from your experience. And so you hear me saying, and you hear this psalm saying, shouts of joy. And it just doesn't ring true to your experience right now. So let me let me share this with you, that, that in the midst of the Negev, in the midst of this desert that you find yourself in, that the Lord is shaping you. He's Digging out a path in the desert for streams in the Negev. 
He wants to remind you, friend, that, that the weight seems heavy. And that faucet of tears in your eyes seems to keep dripping. It's flowing all the time. And God is reminding you that like streams in the Negev, he is preparing your heart to receive him. And in receiving him, you receive his goodness. You receive his power of deliverance. But see, our eyes of faith, our eyes of faith have to be washed with the saline of suffering. The crying does not mean that God has abandoned you. The suffering and the pain does not mean that God has forsaken you. He is in the business of furrowing out a stream bed in the desert, in the suffering. He is digging it out of our lives. Do you remember what we heard just a moment ago in Isaiah 43? Let me me read it again. Isaiah 43 verse 18 says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? Can you see it? Can you see that God is doing something in your life in the midst of suffering? Do you perceive it? And the Lord says, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So what is this new thing that Isaiah is talking about? What is this new thing that God is talking about? Well, we got a glimpse of it in our reading from John's gospel too. Right? John, John tells us in his gospel that Jesus went to the town of Bethany. And it's not just coincidence that this little section in John is there. Nor is it coincidence that it's here in our readings for today. He goes to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And then John makes the comment whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Why would John mention that? When Jesus said, I mean, we already knew that. Well, he wants to take us back to just a chapter before where Jesus was standing at the tomb of Lazarus and we are told that Jesus wept. Jesus wept for his friend, the suffering and the pain. He is well acquainted with your suffering. He was abandoned by those who were closest to him. He was, he was made fun of, he was ridiculed, he was mocked, and he was the only one that's ever been perfect, ever been righteous. And what does he tell Mary and Martha as their brother Lazarus is laying in the tomb and as they are crying? Jesus said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Why? Why? Because Jesus speaks about his burial at the end of our passage in John, right? He mentions this because his burial is coming. He knows that he will be forsaken and cry out from our psalm, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he came to die for all those who turn from their ways and bow their knees to him now, who submit their lives to King Jesus. See, while all the pain and the suffering we experience, it seems like a weight we can't bear. The fact of the matter is, is that there is and will always be 
a greater suffering, and that's namely death. All of us in this room will die one day. Each of us will die. And yet even in this desert, what do we learn is that death is not dying. Death is a river through God's grace. If you've repented of your sin and found him to be the only stream that satisfies you, that becomes a river which carries you to him, to him, to him, to his face, to see him in all his glory. The river bed that was dry with suffering and pain and death becomes a river, a torrent, as it were, that carries you to God. Because Jesus, in his life and death, has been resurrected to give us life and to give us hope if we'll repent and believe in him. For whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We sow in tears, my friends. We sow in tears. So that one day, and maybe that last day when Jesus returns, maybe we'll sow in, we will, we will, we'll sow in tears for the rest of our lives. But there is a day when Jesus will return and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And he will take you into himself and say, I'm enough. And that's where the joy is reaped in him. So we wait for that day that we shout with joy, though weeping may tarry for the night. Joy comes in the morning, right? Joy comes when he returns and he rules in our midst. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to to die, not only die, but to suffer, to be abandoned, to be forsaken. And for those of us who feel abandoned and forsaken, maybe even by you, Father, we cry out and we say, show us the joy of our salvation. Show us, show us that this weeping is momentary. Give us the eyes of faith to see that this suffering is shaping us. It is carving out stream beds so that you will fill us with yourself. Father, we ask that we would find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.